Hello and welcome to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today. Today is Thursday, February 2nd. I'm your reader, Kathleen. From the front page of the Gazette today, USDA touts $75 million worth of investments in rural Iowa. And the article includes a photo of farmers near Norway. This story is by Aaron Jordan. There are half as many American dairy farms today as there were 20 years ago, and the ones that survive are trying something new. For Austin and Jenna Schulte of rural Benton County, that means building a creamery where they can use milk from their 186 Holsteins to produce Gouda, Jarlsberg, Quark, and Cheddar cheeses. We have to do something different, or we'll be done, Jenna Schulte told Jacques Jolt Torres Small, Under Secretary for Rural Development for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, during a a tour on Wednesday of the farm. The dairy has been awarded a $36,000 value-added producer grant from the USDA to create a business plan and conduct a feasibility study on making and marketing cheese produced on-site. It's one of 21 projects that have received $74.7 million in loans or grants to improve infrastructure and expand business in rural Iowa. Much of the investment goes to rural hospitals to buy equipment or recover from the economic impact of the pandemic and to water treatment and distribution projects. The funding comes from several federal pots, including the American Rescue Plan Act, Disaster Aid, and regular rural development funds. Tori Small, accompanied by Teresa Greenfield, the USDA's Iowa Coordinator for Rural Development, also planned to visit three other grant recipients, LDJ Marketing in Pella, Mahaska County Hospital in Oskaloosa, and the William Penn University Nursing School in Oskaloosa. The Schultes bought their small dairy operation in 2010, the same year their oldest son, Caleb, was born. But American cow milk consumption is slowing, and there's been an oversupply, causing prices to plummet. The pandemic brought further volatility. From more than 70,000 dairy producers in 2003, the United States had about 31,000 in 2020, the American Farm Bureau Federation reported. The Schultes decided it made sense to stop sending their milk to the Wapsie County Creamery, in Independence and start using it to make cheese they could sell themselves. Construction on the creamery will start this summer, Austin Schulte said. If everything works out as planned, the Schultes likely will reduce the number of dairy cows, which will cut down on the six-plus hours a day they now spend milking. Tori Small, a former U.S. representative from New Mexico, said one of the goals of the USDA Rural Development is to help farmers find ways to keep farming, rather than being forced to sell sell their land. Farmers figured out how to work as efficiently as possible, and as a result, we see a lot of consolidation, and you see small farmers have to take on other jobs, she said. Even in record years like last year, you see almost 50% of farmers lost money. You know that's not sustainable for our whole country. A handful of community members and industry representatives showed up to talk with Tori Small, including Mariah Busta, Farm Relations Manager for the Midwest Dairy Association, which represents more than 4,800 dairy farms. 
Can you talk a little bit about sustainability? Busta asked. Some farmers are implementing sustainable farming practices, such as reduced tillage or cover crops, and receiving compensation through carbon trading markets, Tory Small said. The USDA's Partnership for Climate Smart Commodities will invest $3.1 billion on 141 pilot projects that test the production and marketing of climate smart commodities. It's about working to fund people's ideas about reducing greenhouse gas emissions and also turn that into a market, she said. And the article includes a photo of the Schulte family, Jenna, Austin, Caleb, and Cole. Also on the front page of the Gazette today, Bill finds schools that violate law on divisive concepts. This story is by Aaron Murphy for the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowa schools are prohibited from teaching so-called divisive concepts under a state law passed in 2021, but now some Republican state lawmakers are looking to put some teeth on the law by adding fines for educators who violate it. School districts would be fined between $500 and $5,000 if they are found in violation of the Divisive Concepts Law under a proposal that received its first legislative approval Wednesday from Iowa House Republicans at the Iowa Capitol. The 2021 law defines divisive concepts and includes, for example, teaching students that moral character is determined by one's race or sex, or that the United States and Iowa are fundamentally or systematically racist. Steve Holt, a Republican from Denison, said the proposal to add fines is needed because he believes some school districts, he did not name any, are violating the divisive concepts law. It would appear to us that this hasn't been compiled, or excuse me, complied with in some school districts, that it has been blatantly ignored in some school districts, or that they're just simply trying to play word games and keep doing the same thing, Holt said during Wednesday's legislative hearing on the proposal. Opponents of the proposal said it does not provide due process for educators who are accused of violating the divisive concepts law. The legislation states that once a complaint is lodged, the state education department will make a ruling. There is no provision for the school district or educator in question to state their case. There doesn't seem to be a whole lot of due process protections for the educators in this. It seems like it's just there's an accusation, someone decides whether or not they did it, and that's it, said Keenan Crow with the LGBTQ advocacy group One Iowa. Education groups also raised concerns over a provision in the proposed legislation that would require the state education department to accept from students and parents reports of possible violations of the divisive concepts law and require the department to compile those allegations and report them to lawmakers. Such a report would be a public document. Michelle Johnson with the Iowa Association of School Boards said that requirement could produce a report that suggests wrongdoing before anything is proven. And a spokesperson for the State Education Department said the department would not be able to handle the anticipated volume of reports of possible violations in an adequate time frame without adding more employees. Holt and Representative Schuyler Wheeler, a Republican from Hull, who chairs the House Education Committee, 
signed off on advancing the House Study Bill 112, which becomes eligible for consideration by the House Education Committee. So Holt said he is cognizant of some of the concerns raised and signaled a willingness to address some of them in the bill. School districts also would be required to publish classroom curriculum and library materials online and have in place a method for parents to ask for the removal of those materials under another bill advanced Wednesday by House Republicans. House File 5 is similar to the House's proposed school transparency legislation from last year. Majority Republicans wound up not passing any bills on the topic because the Republican-controlled Senate and House could not agree. At a legislative hearing Wednesday, education groups said they are mostly neutral about the bill and that districts are already doing much of what's described in the, or prescribed excuse me, in the legislation. Turning now to the Iowa Today page, one man dead in Cedar Rapids hotel fire. A man was found dead Wednesday afternoon when firefighters responded to a fire at a southwest Cedar Rapids hotel. Emergency crews were dispatched to the roadway in 4011 16th Avenue Southwest at 4.20 p.m. According to a news release from Cedar Rapids Public Safety Communications Specialist Mike Batine, crews found heavy smoke coming from a single room at the hotel, the release states. Inside the burning room, they located the man who was dead. His cause of death and the cause of the fire are under investigation. One room in the hotel sustained substantial damage, but the rest of the building had only minimal damage, authorities said. Guests who were evacuated will be able to return to most of the hotel when the investigation is complete. The man who has not been identified by authorities is the first Cedar Rapids fire fatality this year. Also in Iowa to do Today News, judge dismisses Coggins solar lawsuit against Lynn Supervisors. Work on a 640-acre solar farm near Coggin may soon be underway after a Lynn County District Court judge on Wednesday dismissed a lawsuit brought against the County Board of Supervisors by a family living near the planned project. This story is by Marissa Payne. The project was the first of three utility-scale solar projects the Lynn County Board of Supervisors approved last year. As the other projects near Palo, called Duane Arnold Solar 1 and 2, remained stalled in litigation, county officials were hopeful the win for the Coggin project signaled the court would rule favorably in the other cases, allowing the projects to advance. Charlie Nichols, director of Lynn County Planning and Development, said the decision was good news for the Duane Arnold projects because the county used the same process to advance those toward approval. It's good that it is upheld and that our processes and the way we've permitted these was validated by the court, Nichols said. The plaintiffs have 30 days to appeal the court's decision. The utility-scale solar farm three miles west of Coggin is from Coggin Solar, LLC, a partnership between Idaho-based Clanera and Central Iowa Power Cooperative. The project, which would be dismantled after 35 years, is planned for land that property owners voluntarily leased to Coggin Solar. In January 2022, the supervisors voted two to one to rezone the area to allow the project. The approval meant that about 750 acres would be rezoned from agriculture 
to agriculture with a renewable energy overlay that expires after 35 years. Martin Robinson, Paula Robinson, Tom Robinson, and Laura Robinson filed an appeal and challenged the zoning decision in court. The Robinsons were present at all the public solar meetings leading up to the decision. They shared concerns about solar panels being built on agricultural land, potential impact to property value, and damage to drainage tile on farmers' fields. The family alleged the supervisors did not follow the county and state land use regulations, arguing the material terms of the rezoning ordinance were repeatedly altered during meetings and therefore were not considered three times as ordinances are required to be. They also argued the ordinance constituted spot zoning. But the court determined the supervisors had access to land value reports, hydrology studies to consider subsurface drainage issues, and studies showing the project's environmental impact. There also were several conditions in place for the project to protect the neighbors, the land, and environment, according to the court, such as setback provisions from neighboring property. A review of the substantial file established that the board had sufficient information in front of it to determine this was an appropriate decision for the community as a whole, Judge David Cox wrote. The court also agreed with the county that all agricultural property is being uniformly zoned, as the county's zoning ordinance shows utility-scale solar is permitted use for all agricultural zoned property. The county has placed a moratorium on new utility-scale solar projects through at least March, while a review is underway on the county's solar ordinance. And this story by Vanessa Miller on the Iowa Today page, Steindler, North Liberty Campus, facing $10 million cost overrun. Inflation, labor costs, and supply chain issues have upped the total cost and expanded the construction timeline for a new Steindler North Liberty Ambulatory Surgery Center planned near where the University of Iowa is building its new hospital, which also recently saw substantial cost increases. The State Health Facilities Council this week unanimously approved a request from Steindler to increase its total project budget from $19.2 million to $29.3 million and to extend its construction timeline a year from November 2023 to November 2024. At the time of initial State Health Facilities Council approval, while Steinler North Liberty Ambulatory Surgery Center, or NLASC for short, did anticipate inflation and did reserve associated contingency, no one in the industry anticipated the magnitude with which these factors would affect construction given U.S. and world events, according to Steinler's application. Referencing the war between Russia and Ukraine, the number three and number four global aluminum producers, Steindler's application noted its price escalation is similar to what UIHC reported in their request for an extension, as well as what similar projects are reporting across the U.S. and globally. UI Healthcare in August sought similar budget hike approval from the state, which a year earlier granted it a certificate of need for the 300,000-square-foot hospital portion of UIHC's new $395 million North Liberty campus. 
the state approved up, excuse me, approval upped the UIHC's project total cost 33% to $525.6 million. But while UIHC's cost overrun application reported no anticipated construction delays, with completion still tracking for December 2024, Steindler expects its project now will wrap up a year later than planned, abutting its debut with the UIHC project taking shape near the Highway 965 and Forever Green Road intersection. The Steindler North Liberty Ambulatory Surgery Center is planned about 1.5 miles east of the UIHC site, situating that stretch of North Liberty to become a hub for healthcare generally and orthopedics specifically. The Iowa City-based Steindler Orthopedic Clinic is involvement is involved in developing the new 36-acre campus, and UIHC Orthopedics has aired plans to relocate to North Liberty. Apart from its cost increase and construction delays, the Steinler project isn't changing the scope and size of its 35,880-square-foot surgery center, involving six larger-than-usual operating rooms to permit the use of modern orthopedic robotic surgery equipment. The number of ORs, total square footage of program space, and type and quantity of services to be provided remain the same, according to its overrun application. The Steindler application cataloged progress on the project, including hiring Myron Construction Company as its construction manager at risk. With Myron on board and inflation concerns mounting, project officials are negotiating a $25 million cap on construction costs, with $10.1 million above the original 14.9 budget. Because that puts Myron on the hook for any spending over $25 million, according to the application, the construction manager has advised not starting construction until March of 2023 to limit the adverse effect on construction costs by starting construction during the winter months. The third factor contributing to the revised completion date is the availability of building materials, according to the application noting project officials are being quoted 70 weeks for electric switchgear from the time of order. As a result, according to the application, an 18-month construction period will now take nearly two years, based on delaying the start of construction to spring 2023. Project officials outlined specific aspects of the project affected by inflation, supply chain, and labor shortage issues. Heating, ventilation and air conditioning, electrical work, construction management, supervision, engineering, testing and inspection, and concrete, steel, wood, and labor expenses. Most HVAC items are made of copper, aluminum, and steel, all of which have experienced significant inflation, some approaching 40%, according to the application. Electrical components have had similar increases. To date, Steinler has spent $1.1 million on the project and expects to realize its anticipated March construction start date. Also in Iowa news, the UIHC websites are restored after a Tuesday outage, this by Vanessa Miller. 
University of Iowa Healthcare's websites were back up and running Wednesday morning after an outage Tuesday knocked them down for hours. The temporary outage affected service at, or excuse me, to the University of Iowa hospitals and clinics, Stead Family Children's Hospital, and Carver College of Medicine websites Tuesday afternoon. UIHC officials haven't answered questions about when the outage started and how long the sites were down. They also haven't answered questions about what caused the outage and whether it was the result of a cyber attack. In a statement Wednesday, UIHC spokeswoman Molly Rossiter said the websites were restored following information technology interventions with our partners. The outage, she said, didn't interrupt patient care and none of the affected websites contained patient data or information. Turning now to the Insight page, the guest editorial today is a reprint from the Las Vegas Review-Journal, Santos's Lies Merit Impeachment. There are lies and liars, and then there's George Santos. Last week, news broke that the Justice Department wants the Federal Election Commission to delay taking action against the New York Republican. The congressman has faced mounting criticism and legal woes for his serial falsehoods. This news indicates the Justice Department is conducting a criminal probe. Normally, newly elected members of Congress don't make much of an impression. But Representative Santos is national news because he seems to be allergic to the truth in a way that makes even veteran politicians blush. Shortly after his November victory, his biography began falling apart. He claimed previous employment at Goldman Sachs and Citigroup. He highlighted degrees from New York University and Baruch College. But in mid-December, the New York Times reported that none of these organizations had a record of him. Representative Santos then admitted resume embellishment, but insisted there wasn't anything more to the story. A fictional character seems to be the only way to describe Representative Santos's representation of himself. He said his mother was in the South Tower on 9-11 and died a few years later. She didn't pass away till 2016. He claimed he had Jewish grandparents from Ukraine who fled persecution during World War II. Evidence now shows those grandparents were born in Brazil and were likely Catholic. Representative Santos ran as an openly gay Republican. The Daily Beast reported that he appeared to have divorced a woman in 2019. Just days later, he launched an ultimately unsuccessful bid for office in 2020. A disabled veteran accused Representative Santos of running off with $3,000 that was raised to save his dying dog. The Security and Exchange Commission is interested in his role in Harbor City Capital, which the SEC previously accused of being a classic Ponzi scheme. The FEC is curious about the source of a $700,000 loan Representative Santos made to his campaign. Republicans have a narrow margin in the lower chamber and don't want to lose even a single vote but standing up for integrity would be the right thing to do. Representative Santos's alternative reality extends well beyond typical political embellishment. Expulsion or impeachment are extremely rare, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy should make clear they are on the table if Representative Santos refuses to resign. House Republicans have a narrow margin and don't want to lose even a single vote.
24-hour doorman today is titled, Reynolds Wants Clarity, But Not for Clean Water. Our governor is a real joiner. Last year, Governor Kim Reynolds joined states filing a lawsuit challenging the Biden administration's college debt repayment plan while she campaigned on providing taxpayer dollars for private school tuition in Iowa. She joined Republican governors in two dozen states to create the American Governor's Border Strike Force to crack down on undocumented immigrants. Other than striking a tough-on-immigration pose, the impact is unclear. You may recall Reynolds regretted that Iowa did not join a federal lawsuit filed by Texas seeking to overturn millions of lawful votes in the interest of advancing the fantasy that the 2020 election was stolen. Now Reynolds is among 24 Republican governors calling on the Biden administration to delay implementation of federal clean water rules intended to protect wetlands or other smaller water bodies that could carry pollution into the waters of the United States or WOTUS. They want the WOTUS rules delayed until the U.S. Supreme Court rules on a case challenging the regulatory scope of the Federal Clean Water Act. The substance of the rule hinders state governments as we seek to give clarity and consistency to businesses, farms, and individuals regarding the regulatory framework for water, the governor wrote in a letter. In Iowa, of course, what's clear is the state doesn't care if our water is dirty. Consistency means not doing anything about cleaning up our water that powerful agricultural interests don't like. Our regulatory flexibility in the service of agriculture has tied efforts to protect the environment in knots. Even under written WOTUS rules, the vast majority of farming practices still are exempt from regulations. Farmers and landowners can still install farm drainage tiles carrying polluted runoff into waterways without fear of federal oversight. These are non-point sources of pollution which are supposed to be regulated by the states. The federal puddle police are not a real thing. What the new rules would do is seek to protect wetlands and relatively permanent waters with a significant nexus to waters of the U.S. That means if a wetland is adjacent to a large waterway and could affect its water quality, it may qualify for federal protection. If your goal is clean water, protecting these adjacent water bodies makes sense. If your goal is to let developers and other landowners destroy wetlands and disregard the real impact of smaller waterways on larger ones, this is regulatory overreach. Maybe the feds could just urge landowners to voluntarily keep water clean. That's worked great in Iowa as nitrates and phosphorus from cropland foul our waterways, threaten drinking water, spawn toxic algae blooms, and help create a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. I wish Reynolds and other WOTUS warriors were right, but the feds are riding in to clean up this 23 million hog state, but that is not happening. While Governor, or excuse me, while Reynolds joins Governor Ron Red Tide DeSantis and other Republicans, Iowa's Democratic leaders have little to say. They fear the wrath of farmers. Allowing the degradation of our environment must be part of their rural outreach. They should join the fight. What do they have left to lose? The auditor's office? 
and that's 24-hour doorman. One community letter today is titled, Measures Needed at Dangerous Marion Intersection. Something needs to be done to reduce accidents at the very busy intersection of Highway 100 and East Post Road. On January 11, a driver was killed there when a semi-truck ran a red light and hit a car broadside. The green light speed limit on Highway 100 at that ex at uh, that location is 55 miles per hour! Exclamation point. This past Sunday morning, I was about to perform the same turn that caused the January 11 accident and death. Having a green arrow to turn west onto Highway 100, three eastbound vehicles busted through the red lights. Thankfully, I was aware of the dangers of this intersection and was watching for cross-traffic. I call upon the Iowa DOT to add yellow warning lights and rumble strips, similar to those at the Highway 13, Highway 100 intersection, to warn drivers of the impending red lights at East Post Road. To further reduce high-speed impacts, I also request that the Iowa DOT reduced the speed limit to 45 miles an hour on Highway 100 from 1st Avenue Northeast to 31st Street in Marion. One needs only to see the skid marks at the Menards entrance on a curved portion of eastbound Highway 100 to see that a lower speed limit is warranted. There is no excuse to not do any of these safety measures. Will this prevent all future accidents? No but it would certainly reduce the events, reduce or prevent serious injuries, and save lives. And that letter is submitted by Dale Braun of Cedar Rapids. You're listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 2, on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now we turn to today's obituary page, very short today, starting with the uh, other notices in Cedar Rapids, uh, excuse me, from Decorah, Daryl Bruning, age 78, died Monday, January 30. Helms Funeral Home is assisting the family. In Fort Atkinson, Rosemary Kreiner, age 89, died Tuesday, January 31st. Helms Funeral Home is in charge of arrangements. From Olwine, Ruth M. Quario, 73, of West Des Moines, formerly of Olwine, died Tuesday, January 31st. Jameson Schmidt's funeral home is in charge of arrangements. And from Oshin, Clifford Harnack, age 83, died Tuesday, January 31st. Helms Funeral Home of Decorah is assisting. Turning now to the regular notices, first from Cedar Rapids, Jane Mike Zahn. With profound sadness, we announced the, the passing of Jane Zahn. Mike, to most of us, our loving and devoted mother and friend to all, whose lives she touched, she passed away February 1st. A celebration of life will be held at Miguel's, 175 Jocelyn Drive Northwest, from 1 to 4 p.m. Saturday, February 4. And the family asks you send donations to Oldorf Hospice House in Care of Mercy Foundation, 701 10th Street Southeast in Cedar Rapids, 52403. From Iowa City, Patricia, known as Pat Barbara Pribble, 
Died peacefully Monday, January 30. Mass of Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 a.m. Saturday, February 4 at St. Mary's Church, Holy Family Parish in Riverside. Father William Rausch will officiate. Visitation will be from Friday, oh, excuse me, Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. at the church. The rosary will be recited at 3.30 p.m. Burial will be at Mount Oliver Cemetery. Memorials may be directed to St. Mary's Church for the organ restoration or to the Riverside First Responders, both in care of People's Bank in Riverside. And our final obituary from Marion, Leandra Strope, 66, passed away suddenly January 31st. A visitation will be held from 4 to 8 p.m. Friday, February 3, at Cedar Memorial Chapel Stateroom. There will be a private family interment. You can direct online condolences to the family at cedarmemorial.com. Turning now to the sports page, Girls State Wrestling, this story by K.J. Pilcher. Jillian Worthen earned her nickname as a rambunctious child. She was she has validated the monster moniker her dad tagged her with and even embraced it. After all, it serves as an apt description of her intensity and competitiveness. Opponents are well aware of monster and what she's like on the mat. I like it, Worthen said. That's all everybody knows me as now. I still hear it at tournaments. You have to wrestle monster. It's a big deal. I have a bunch of people telling me they like the name. It really goes along with my wrestling. Worthen is considered one of the top wrestlers in the state and is nationally ranked. She will attempt to capture the 105-pound title in the inaugural Iowa Girls High School Athletic Union State Wrestling Tournament today and Friday at Extreme Arena in Coralville. The Knights sophomore is the top seed entering the historic event with a 23-0 record. I'm pretty excited, but it's basically a business trip, Worthen said. I have to focus on going in, weighing and getting it done, and rest for the next day. I'll save all my emotions for after it. The state tournament at a glance is the inaugural IGHSAU state wrestling tournament held at the Extreme Arena in Coralville today and Friday, it begins at 9 a.m. both days. Finals are Friday at 6 p.m. Tickets are $15, and there are several area qualifiers. The Gazette area wrestlers to watch are Naomi Simon at 170 pounds from Decorah. The junior is top-seeded and top-ranked by IA Wrestle at 170 pounds with a 32-0 and record. From Cedar Rapids Prairie, Mackenzie Childers at 125. Childers is one of 15 unbeaten wrestlers to qualify for the state tournament. She has been perched atop the 125-pound rankings and is the number one seed with a 44-0 and mark. Emma Peach from Iowa Valley at 145. Peach has continued the family's success on the mat along with her younger sister, Brianna, at 190. She is ranked 12th at 144 pounds nationally by USA Wrestling. From East Buchanan at 155, Keely Curley. She is three-time IWCOA medalist who placed second at 152 as a sophomore and sixth last season. 
She is seeded third with a 44-4 and four mark, winning a regional title with a decision over Iowa City West's second-seeded Janelle Abia, who is ranked 28th nationally. From Cedar Rapids, Kennedy, Ella Brown. Brown was 7th at the 2022 IWCOA Girls State Meet, ending with a 14-2 mark. She was propelled into the season with a runner-up finish at preseason's nationals. Turning now to the hoopla section, Textiles on Tap is the title of this article by Elijah Decius. A new satellite tap room is bringing a mainstay to Atkins Main Street with the fourth expansion of a Dyersville brewery. Textile Tap House opened in May is bringing to this Benton County town a growing trend in Iowa, the rapid expansion of local breweries and tap rooms across the state. You could tell there's a lot of new homes and neighborhoods around town and there was nothing really here for them to do. Owner Tom Olberding said, we thought it would be neat to bring as much of the brewery as we can to this town. The new tap room with more than 20 taps featuring brews from Textile Brewing Company, River Ridge Brewing, and other Iowa producers is solidifying Textile's rapidly growing footprint across northeast Iowa. After acquiring River Ridge Brewing in Bellevue and opening another tap room in Cascade, the fourth location will be part of the brand's foundation as it settles. Inside the restored former Atkins apartment building is a dining room where industrial charm and historic finishes replicate vibes similar to Textiles Dyersville and Cascade locations. Since it has the textile name, we wanted it to look and feel as much like the brewery as we could get, Oberling said. I feel like we did a pretty good job of that. The building, which previously served as a general store for what used to be a railroad town, brings similar parallels to the brewery's Dyersville location, which was renovated in 2019 after being built as a gasoline engine factory in 1908 and serving as a sewing factory from 1910 to 2017. Interior details stitch together authentic historical nods at every turn. Over the concrete bar, early 20th century sewing machines have been transformed into one-of-a-kind chandeliers by Tommy toy designer Chris Heisman of Dyersville. Functional tap handles feature actual tools of the textile trade, re-employed to pour beer. Edison light bulbs drape the front windows and glow with their old-fashioned wiring at every turn. Tabletops have been made out of old sewing tables, original hardwood floors have been restored to their former glory, and reclaimed wood from local barns accents walls. Sewing tools, sewing machines, and sewing tables are repurposed from the Dyersville factory stock left in that building before it was renovated. The Atkins location also features a full patio for warm weather months with an upcoming calendar of summer activities like volleyball. With a full menu of massive Bavarian pretzels, flatbreads, and cauliflower crust pizzas, food is not an afterthought at the tap room. Adorned with layers of toppings, shareable pretzels become a sweet and savory entree of their own, from cinnamon rolls to pizza. We just wanted something to keep people there for maybe one more beer, Olberding said. It's like being at a festival in Munich. 
the Bavarian pretzel, and the beer cheese. With no need for fryers or a full kitchen, the model also works well for adaptive renovations at new locations like Atkins. If you go, it's Textile Tap House, 76 Main Avenue in Atkins. Hours are 3 to 9 p.m. Monday through Thursday, 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. on Sunday. Open for dine-in and carry-out, they have a full menu of locally brewed beers, sours, Bavarian pretzels, and flatbreads. Patio service will be available seasonally. Art and Architecture Merge is the title of this article by Diana Nolan. Every building is a work of art, from the most humble abode to the historical designs of the Paramount Theater and the Bruce Moore Mansion in Cedar Rapids, as well as Hancher Auditorium in Iowa City, fashioned with a facade propelling it into the future. Built This Way, Architecture in Art, which opens Saturday at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, blurs the lines between the art that hangs on the walls inside a structure and the aesthetics of the structure itself. This is a celebration of architecture as inspiring other art forms, so it's a lot of paintings and prints, said curator Kate Kunau. She chose about 45 works from the museum's collection, which will be on view through May 14 in the first floor's back three galleries. I included some of Frank Lloyd Wright's plans for his houses and other domestic spaces, so there are actual architectural plans in the exhibition as well, but it is mostly visual artists in other genres who are inspired by architecture, she said. However, local architect Brad Brown also has a piece on view, Sinclair Meatpacking Plant 1, which harkens to the building blocks of Cedar Rapids' industrial history. He did a beautiful, really beautiful watercolor triptych, very precise, which is difficult to do in watercolor, Kunau said. Two other pieces of the past include Marvin Cohn's Houses That Jack Built, painted in 1960, showing the celebrated Cedar Rapids artist's move toward abstraction, and Mildred Pelzer's We Build Our Capital 1841, from the mural the Iowa City artist created for the city's Jefferson Hotel. Painted in 1934, this Pelzer work, nearly 10 feet long, reflects a style akin to her teacher, Grant Wood, with whom she studied at the University of Iowa. She also studied with Cohn, Wood's lifelong friend and fellow regionalist. Cohn was interested in depicting both nature and architecture, noted for his clouds and doors paintings. He made several variations of houses, Kuno said, and this piece has been used in past exhibitions, but it's the first time she has used it since she joined the museum staff in 2015. Creating this exhibition allowed Kuno, an art historian, to examine the intersections and departures of art and architecture through the years. And in brief, if you go, the collection is called Built This Way, Architecture in Art. It's showing at the Cedar Rapids Museum of Art, 410 Third Avenue Southeast, Saturday through May 14. Hours there are noon to 4 p.m. Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday noon to 8 p.m. on Thursdays, 
and 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturday. Admission charges vary depending upon age, and you can view through the lens photography from 1950 through the collection. Uh, again, that is on the second floor gallery, and that's available through April 30. Opening reception for Through the Lens and Built This Way is from 5 to 6.30 p.m. Thursday today. Remarks will be given at 5.30 p.m. by Executive Director Sean Ulmer and Curator Kate Kunow. Also in the food category, Chew on This by Elijah Decius. Tommaso's opening at a new location. Tommaso's Pizza is planning to move its Cedar Rapids location to First Avenue Northeast soon. The local pizza restaurant started renovating a building at the corner of 27th Street and First Avenue Northeast around May 2022. A recent social media post announced plans to open there in early March. The new location will replace the existing Cedar Rapids location currently at 3234 Centerpoint Road Northeast. Tommaso's also has locations in Uptown Marion and Hiawatha, which will remain. The local restaurant, known for its Detroit, Chicago deep dish, and New York thin crust styles, has been open in Cedar Rapids for more than 27 years. And a Brooklyn-style pizzeria chain with roots in the Big Apple has its eyes on Iowa for expansion starting this year. Grimaldi's Pizzeria known for its cold brick oven pizza, announced an agreement to develop multiple franchises in Iowa through Dough Time Pizza Company. The franchise will open five Grimaldi's locations in Iowa, with the first one planned to open by the end of 2023. Locations under consideration for the first five locations include Ankeny, Waukee, Iowa City, and Ames. The first Iowa site has not been determined. The expansion to Iowa comes as the chain plans to open five restaurants in the United Arab Emirates as well. It currently has locations in 11 states, mostly in the south and southwestern United States. And a Cedar Rapids chef has been named as a semifinalist for the 2023 James Beard Award. Rodina executive chef and owner Samuel Charles was the only Iowa chef named to the shortlist for this year's Best Chef Award in the Midwest category, which includes Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, North and South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Charles co-owns the upscale Midwest comfort food restaurant with wife and general manager Phoebe Charles. He is among 11 semifinalists in the award category, considered one of the highest honors in the culinary industry. Samuel Charles was named 2021 Chef of the Year by the Iowa Restaurant Association, in part for his elevation of Midwestern comfort food, which recognizes the value of quality simplicity. Chef Samuel Charles is helping elevate the culinary game in the Midwest and by bringing recognition to the amazing cuisine across our state, said Jessica Dunker, President and CEO of the Iowa Restaurant Association. And the building formerly occupied by the Bohemian Restaurant in Cedar Rapids is now on the market for $900,000. The historic Mate building, built in 1893, 
located at 1029 3rd Street Southeast in the heart of the Nouveau District, was renovated by owners Mike and Lynette Richards, who bought the building in 1999. As they renovated the building to become a restaurant, they filled the rooms with art, artifacts, and antiques from across the country. Before the floods of 2008, the second floor served as their home, while the main level served as a workspace and youth art center. Around 2017, they started to convert the 7,800-square-foot building into one business. The Bohemian opened to serve food and drinks there in March of 2021. The restaurant closed in September of 2022, shortly after staff members quit, citing unpaid wages. Turning back to the Iowa Today page, this story by Gazette Lee Des Moines Business Bureau is titled, Bill for 3% School Funding Boost Advances. A bill setting a $106.8 million increase in public K-12 school funding is eligible for floor debate in the Iowa House and moving into the Senate. House File 171 and Senate File 192 on Wednesday advanced out of separate committees. The bill increases supplemental state aid to Iowa public schools by 3%. The figure is higher than the 2.5% requested by Governor Kim Reynolds in her budget proposal. The bills passed along party lines with Republicans in favor and Democrats opposed. The proposed increase translates to a per-pupil cost for the next school year of $7,635. The bills also include a 3% boost for categorical funds like the Teacher Leadership Supplement and Transportation Equity. State funding for public schools has increased by a little over 2% on average each year over the past decade. If signed into law, a 3% increase would be the highest increase in public school funding since 2015. The Iowa State Education Association, the union representing public school teachers, requested the legislature increase state aid by 4%. Lobbyists for education groups said the 3% increase was not enough to keep up with rising costs for schools and would not keep schools competitive with private sector employers. Because of falling enrollment, some schools will see their total state aid decrease. Iowa's budget guarantee process allows schools that do not reach at least 101% of the previous year's budget to supplement up to 101% using property taxes. Around 72 schools would need to follow the budget guarantee process under the bill, said Rep. Senator Tim Cryenbrink, a Republican from Fort Dodge. Also in state tax news, the Iowa Senate unanimously passed legislation Wednesday to fix a state error that's left property taxpayers on the hook for higher bills than expected, but leaves cities and counties in the lurch having to make up the budget shortfall. Property tax cuts in 2013 and 2021 changed the way multi-residential properties such as apartment complexes and nursing homes and mobile home parks are taxed to bring them in line with other residential properties. But in November, the Nonpartisan Legislative Services Agency discovered the Iowa Department of Revenue erroneously included multi-residential properties with other residential properties when calculating what's known as the rollback rate, 
an adjustment the state makes to hold down taxes by limiting the annual growth of property assessments. The result is that residential property owners across Iowa would pay about $130 million more than they should have under this law's original intent, unless lawmakers fix the problem. The change also creates a shortfall in expected revenue for cities, counties, school boards, and other local taxing entities, which now are preparing fiscal 2024 budgets. Finishing up with the weather story, we flip to another month. February is upon us, which is the third month of meteorological winter. During the month, we get both mild and cold nights. We still have the opportunities to see some of our clearest nighttime skies of the year. Mercury is tough to see, but along with Mars can be found in the morning sky. We're looking for a high of 24 today in Cedar Rapids and a low of 7 below zero. Those cold temperatures hold through the weekend. The normal high for today is 29 and the normal low is 12. A record high of 57 degrees was set in 1987. The record low of 26 below zero was set in 1996. We have sunset tonight at 5.23 p.m., sunrise tomorrow at 7.17 a.m. That gives us 10 hours and 5 minutes of daylight. And we're in the waxing gibbous moon phase with moon rise at 2.19 p.m. and moon set at 6.29 a.m. That does it for the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for today, Thursday, February 2. I've been your reader, Kathleen. You can access a copy of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thanks for listening, and have a great, safe day.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Shortly after modern humans arrived in Europe, the Neanderthals disappeared, and scientists think we had something to do with it. Neanderthals, or their direct ancestors, migrated out of Africa and into the Middle East and Europe around 250,000 years ago. Soon, they were well adapted to the environment. Large eyes helped them see in the longer nights and darker winters. Stout bodies helped them retain heat and handle large prey, and provided space for the large liver and kidneys needed for a diet heavy in protein. Their brains were as big as ours, but spent processing power on their greater visual and motor abilities. This may not have allowed them to develop higher communication or conceptual thinking to match ours, which may have been their downfall. Modern humans arrived on the scene 45,000 years ago, less physically adapted, but more mentally adaptable. We had cooperative hunting methods superior to the Neanderthals, allowing us to outcompete them for food, and perhaps reducing the large herbivore populations that they depended on. We also had superior tools and weapons. When there were conflicts between the groups, as there have been among tribes throughout history, our superior technology probably allowed us to prevail. But we weren't only fighting. There must have been considerable interbreeding, since we can find 1-3% to of the Neanderthal genome in modern man. Which means the Neanderthals never completely disappeared. A little bit of them is alive in us today. I'm Scott Tinker. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more Earth Date stories at earthdate.org.